18. Before I read this, I want to jump back in the Old Testament to Ezekiel chapter 27. Uh, The reason I do that is so that you'll realize that many of the things that we see coming to completion in this book of Revelation have in the past already in some degree and in some ways and at different times seen some degree of fulfillment. In other words, very often the prophecies that we see here in Revelation are just fuller, greater prophecies of things that were prophesied in past times. And some of the time, those things have actually come to pass. The reason I bring you to Ezekiel chapter 27 is this, is it talks about one of the Phoenician cities called Tyre. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not. It's T-Y-R-E. It's pronounced Tyre. It was located on an island just off the coast uh, of of the the eastern Mediterranean Sea, just north of the Promised Land. It was one of the cities of the Phoenicians. And those Phoenicians were seafarers. They they were noted as being the sailors of the Mediterranean. And they colonized places along the North African coast and other places that they went to. And they were great traders. We we talked last time in, in Revelation chapter 18 about the merchandising of all these different goods that were taking place um, during the days of the Roman Empire and things were made available to people that were not before. Part of that was because of the Phoenicians. But hear what the Word of God has to say about Tyre. Moreover, the Word of God came to me saying, uh, And you, son of man, take up a lamentation over Tyre and say to Tyre who dwells, at the entrance uh, to the sea, merchants uh, of the people to, to many coastlands. Thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the sea. Your builders have perfected your beauty, have made all your planks of fir trees from Sinef. They have taken a cedar from Lebanon to make a mass for you. O oars of Bashan, they have made your oars with ivory. They have inlaid your deck of boxwood from the coastlands of Cyprus. You sail, your sail was a fine embroidered linen from Egypt, as we talked about last week or two weeks ago, so that it became your distinguishing mark. Your awning was blue and purple from uh, the coastlands of Elisha. And inhabitants of Sidon and Arvid were your rowers, your wise men, Otire, were aboard. They were your pilots, the elders of Gebel, and her wise men were with you, repairing your seams. All the ships of the sea and their sailors were with you in order to deal in your merchandise, Persia and Lud and Put were in your army, your men of war. They hung shield and helmet, and you they set forth your splendor. And I'm not going to read all of this because it will go on. Uh, we'll jump down to verse 26. Your rowers have brought you into great warriors. The East Sea has broken you in the heart of the seas. Your wealth, your wares, your merchandise, your sailors, and your pilots, your repairers of seams, your dealers in merchandise, and all your men of war who are in you with all your company that is in your midst will fall into the heart of the seas on the day of your overthrow. 
Tyre was considered to be the impregnable city. For centuries, armies tried to break Tyre, and they failed over and over and over again. On the eastern side of the city, they say the wall that protected the city was 150 feet tall. I mean, can you imagine something like that? A wall, protective wall, separating, in essence, this island kingdom from the mainland. Protecting it. It wasn't until Alexander the Great came along. He finally laid siege to Tyre and conquered Tyre. How did he do that? He built a causeway all the way from the mainland to the island so that he could move siege towers and catapults and things like that right up to the city wall. They had siege towers that were 200 feet tall. A 20-story building. So now they could lob their stuff over that 150-foot wall. This is something that's established in history. We know that this stuff took place. That as prosperous as Tyre had been in those days, in this place of great merchandising and uh, and, and the spreading of wares all over the world and this, that, and the other. The tire was also a marketer, um, a marketer of sensuality, immorality. And we know that what Alexander the Great did was great for Alexander, but at the same time he was used in the hand of God as his instrument of judgment upon that city that had prospered so much, but not to the glory of God, to its own glory. That should remind us very much of Revelation chapter 18. The picture is very much the same, only we understand it's not just this city of Tyre. It's the whole immoral world that has existed now since the Garden of Eden. Babylon. Here described as Babylon. You could just as easily stick in the tire, the little city tire. Babylon the Great. Also called the Great Seductress or the Great Harlot. The one who has led people in every generation over and over again down the road, the path of immorality. Just remember this as we read chapter 18. 
After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory, and he cried out with a loud voice or mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, and she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and and hateful birds. And all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, and that you may not receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has Paid and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed. Mixed twice as much for her to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously. To the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire for the Lord who judges her is strong. The kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and live sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, whoa, or how terrible, how awful it will be. The great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of Horses of chariots and slaves and humble human lives and the fruit of you long uh, for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city. She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste in every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor. And as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning saying what city is like the great city. And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all uh, who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. And the strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus... Will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and not be found any longer? And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeteers will not be heard in her any longer. And no craftsman 
of any craft will be found in you any longer, and the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer, and the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer, for your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who had been slain on the earth. Powerful words from a powerful and mighty God. We know that judgment is coming. You can't get away from that if you study the New Testament hardly at all. Just study the words of Jesus in Matthew. Judgment is coming. There's a day of judgment that is coming. And it's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come and it's going to to happen so quickly that people are going to be amazed at it. Notice here that the three different groups of people that are mentioned here specifically. First of all, the kings of the earth. These are those who have allied themselves with the immorality of, of the world who have gained... Uh, great wealth themselves at the expense of other people through dishonest gain and through immoral acts on their part. He also mentions the merchants. And this is kind of where we were last time. And, and we need to understand something. That is that, that being a merchant, merchandising things, is not a sin. Things become sinful when they become our idols. When they're driven by greed. When people just want more of more of more of more. And the more they have, I don't know how many wealthy people you know, but I know a few. And what I found with this, I know a few wealthy people who are Christians. And they seem to be pretty satisfied. But the wealthy people that I know that are not believers, they're not. They are worriers. They're some of the anxious, most anxious people I've ever met in my lifetime. Because enough is not enough. They're trying to accumulate enough that they won't ever have to worry about things. Which means pursuing more and more and more and more. Where are we this morning when we think about these things? Just remember the words of Jesus that we read this morning about treasures in heaven as compared to treasures on earth. We have some very wealthy people in the world today. I was reading this week that Jeff Bezos, the guy that started Amazon, and he's worth $131 billion. Supposedly the richest man in the world. Bill Gates $96 billion, the, the founding person as far as Microsoft goes. Put things in perspective, for 2019, the entire United States government budget is $985 billion. So you're talking about a person that has about one-fifth of the amount of money is the whole budget for the whole country in one whole year. And what I want to ask us this morning is, when is enough enough? When is enough going to be enough?
I think very often when it comes to matters of finance, the world has really influenced the thinking of people in the church more so than the other way around. Part of it is this, is we all want security. And one of the things that we want is financial security. We want to have all of our I's dotted and all of our T's crossed and know where the money's going to come from to able to, to sustain us in the lifestyle that we want to have. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think that, that, that there's maybe some degree of reason for that, good reason for that? I mean, there is a parable about the, you know, the ants and the grasshopper in Proverbs, right? About this kind of stuff. So there's a place for, for, for Christians to apply this kind of stuff to the manner in which they live their life. We need to be responsible is what I'm saying here when it comes to finances and everything else. But at the same time, where does trust come into the picture? Seriously. I mean, at what point are we going to eventually, are we, do we already at that point? Are we going to get to that point where we eventually get to the point, you know what, I just trust God. He told me he's going to take care of me. I mean, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to be anxious about it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to lay at night in bed wondering about whether I'm going to have financial security tomorrow or the next day or the next week or 10 years from now. Let me tell you something, until the church gets its act together, we have no expectation for the world ever coming close to getting its act together because we are the example that needs to be following. And very often you're finding that we are following the, the world when it comes to things like this more so than the world is looking upon us and saying, those people certainly know something I don't know. They seem to have a lot of confidence in this God. So where are you? Seriously. It's easy to give from the excess. But I want to remind us this morning that the, the giving... And I'm talking about just giving to the church, but I'm talking about giving to charity and etc. The standard is not a tenth in the New Testament. The standard, really, in the whole Bible is sacrifice. And what does sacrifice mean? It means giving in such a way that it affects your life. Your life is changed as a result of it. Maybe you can't do all the things that you'd like to do. Let me just tell you, on Sunday mornings, you need to just realize I'm preaching to myself. <laughs> Seriously. I can't tell you how many, how many thoughts and things and whatever have been before me in these more recent years because, you know, Lori and I are getting older and so we're looking 
one of these days about retiring, not anything time soon that I know of, but at the same time, you know, and, and you're saying, well, when we get all of our ducks in a row, when, when this is worked out and that's worked out and you know, all this other kind of stuff. Is that really the approach that we ought to have when it comes to this sort of thing? I'm not saying that we should be irresponsible. There are a lot of people who are. They make very irresponsible decisions and they wind up paying the cost of it and other people do too and all of that. See, it's easy to trust God when all of our ducks are in the row. When all of the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. But is that really trusting? I know I'm just kind of summarizing this this whole chapter, but but you have these three groups. You have these kings, and what are they guilty of? They're guilty of greed, and they're they're, they're guilty of of trying to acquire for themselves all the riches and the wealth of this world at the expense of everybody else. You have these merchants who are doing the same sort of thing. You have these seafaring people in, in, in verse 17, all the shipmasters and all the, the, the sailors and the people that work on the ships and all of that. They're, they're using this, this trade that they have, this profession that they have. Why? To amass for themselves wealth, worldly wealth, that in the end will show itself to be absolutely of no value at all. It's true of all three of these groups. And you'll see that when the, when the Babylon falls, when this wicked and evil world falls to, at, at the feet of Jesus Christ, when he comes his second time in all of his might, in all of his glory, they will cave before him. And, 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 and all of this stuff, all of this energy, all of this effort, all of this passion, all of this, this, this life given to worldly treasures will show itself to have been absolutely, totally wasted for things that are of no value at all. None. We're going to get on to the one of the things going on in this part of the book of Revelation is this contrasting between what we've called the city of men, which is what we're talking about here, Babylon, the great, and etc. Tyre, examples of the city of men, as opposed to the city of God, which descends down from heaven in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 21. We get there, what we're going to find is the city's made out of this stuff. The, 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 the gates of the New Jerusalem, are the, each gate is a single pearl. And the streets are gold. But that's not where the real value lies. The value of the city of God is the God whose city it is. 
There's nothing more precious on the face of this planet than a living, breathing, loving relationship with our maker through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most valuable possession any person could possibly ever have. And when you have that, how could you almost possibly never even want anything else? If you know what really is valuable, if you know what really is seeking after, why spend the time, the effort, the worry, the frustration, seeking after things that in the the end are going to show themselves to be worthless and meaningless and empty and of no good to anybody? How many people have wasted their lives away doing exactly that? How many people in the history of this world have spent their whole lifetime chasing after things that are going to show themselves to be valueless? They come to the end of their life and they have nothing of eternal value. See, that's the difference between treasures on earth. They're temporal. They're fleeting. They don't last. They don't give people the real kind of pleasure they promise. They're a lies. They promise us our life will be easy. Promises that we won't worry anymore. If we have just enough of this and enough of that, that worry will be gone from us. But that's not what we see with people. We see the more you get, the more you worry about losing what you've got. understand that we have the most valuable possession that anyone could ever have through our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have God. I hate to run through all of this too quickly. But notice that all of these people, they're all, they're all mourning. They're weeping. They're crying. Their world has collapsed. They stand at a distance. They, they, were, they were right up, you know, nice and close to the harlot during the days of prosperity. But now that they, they come to this judgment stuff and, and, and the whole city's come crashing down, they distance themselves from her to start with. And we're told here why? Because they're in fear of suffering the same fate. And lo and behold, according to the words of Jesus, they will suffer that same fate. They may be distant for a little while, but it's not going to save them. It's not going to protect them. They've offended an almighty God, and they will pay the piper to the man, to the woman. Rejoice over, this is verse 20, O heaven and you saints and apostles and prophets because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Remember where this book began? Those letters to the seven churches. 
And remember, with, it, with just about all of them, we talked about how severely they were persecuted in all kinds of ways. And one of those is they suffered economically, that, that very often the Christians were not allowed to join the trade guilds. And if you weren't part of the trade guild in some of these cities, you couldn't make a living. They were reduced to poverty for one reason, because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Also in chapter 6, we read about the souls of spirits of the martyrs who were there underneath the altar, and they're crying out to God unceasingly. When? When are you going to bring judgment? God has heard their prayer, and he has acted. Strong angel took a stone, a great millstone, and cast it into the sea. Well, strong angel, obviously strong, because it takes a lot to pick up a millstone. Millstones sometimes were very, very big. They were used for grinding grain uh, and all of that. But just this violent act. I don't know if you remember, there was a guy by the name of Abimelech. He was one of the sons of Gideon. He was a very wicked man. How did he die? It was an old lady that cast a millstone off a tower and hit him in the head and killed him. So millstones, in the, in the Bible sometimes, we know what they're used for, but sometimes they're used as an instrument of judgment. It's not the first time that has happened. And all the sounds of the city die. There's, no, there's nothing going on in the city. All production ceases. This, you know, everything that was there and, and it seemed to be doing so well for so long is now just... There's no, there's no music. There's no celebration. People are no longer going to be getting married there. There's going to be family get-togethers and this, that, and the other. Just remember this, that we're going on beyond this because it would be terrible. It would be terrible, awful if the book of Revelation stopped where we are right now. With just judgment. And we've been in judgment up to our eyeballs for the last two or three chapters. But fortunately, that's not the rest of the story. There's a flip side to the coin. That there is judgment coming, but at the same time, there is unbelievable undescribable blessing coming also to those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But only to them. Riches and wealth beyond our comprehension of things that really are worth seeking after. I'm going to jump all the way to verse 24. In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain. God's judgment is coming for a lot of reasons. And one of the primary reasons is these people are an affront to God. The other reason is this. Reason is this. It's because of what they have done to the people of God. 
How many have been murdered? How many's lives have been destroyed? For believers down through the generations. They say that, that, that there, there were more people martyred in uh, the last century than all of the other centuries put together. And what we're talking about here is Christians giving their life for the faith. And we talk about what took place in World War II with the Jewish, the, the German attempts to completely extinguish the Jews. But did you know that there were over a million Christians that died in World War II at the hands of the Nazis? There were millions of people who died in the, in, in, in the communist takeover of Russia. There were millions of people who died in the Boxer Rebellion in China. Many of those were Christians. When Lori and I went to Uganda, it was a country in shambles. And it was a country where Christians were murdered and slaughtered by the hordes for years by Idi Amin and his people. God's judgment's coming. But part of it is he's bringing judgment upon those people who have treated his people so very harshly, so very badly. In a sense, Jesus is coming to avenge you. Today is the second Sunday of the month, and we always do communion, the Lord's Supper.